Ship Platypus Says, episode 37. have a three-part episode for you. Our European correspondent Andreas Wintersberger catches up with activists Ian Cassidy. Originally from Ireland, Cassidy is now Berlin-based, working for a campaign which aims to expropriate Berlin's largest private housing companies. In the next segment, my co-host Pamela sits down with Victor and Cecil, our members in Aarhus, to discuss the recent debates over academic freedom in Danish universities. This is in response to the parliament in Denmark accusing researchers of excessive activism. But to get us started, we're going to hear from Luz Jarrett, who is the editor of the Platypus Review. The Platypus Review is published monthly and is open to submission. It can be found at many universities throughout the world with Platypus chapters and at some leftist bookshops. And of course, it can be read online. We'll include a link in the bio. Lou and I give a taster of what's in store in the latest issue, which features an interview with Angela Davis alongside the publication of her seminar paper, Introduction to Negative Dialectics, a panel discussion on Hegel and the Left, and two articles on social democracy, the mix, and the problem of the labour metaphysic, a response to recent articles by Chris Catrone and Matt Karp, and we have Adorno's dialectic, Freedom in Crisis. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for having me on. From the position of editor, how did how did these pieces come together into this issue? And I know that the Angela Davis piece is the first time it's been translated into English and, and been published, um, which was quite a big deal as well. Yeah, that's right. We um, we got permission uh, to translate it. Regarding how they how they came together, I would say that in part that these things correspond to the left's concerns more broadly not just about this issue but the platypus review in general is really a continuation and extension of the activity of platypus and so you know as we often say it's hosting the conversation on the death of the left in print and and so hegel for example um these things uh correspond to our summer reading groups uh, that we've hoped that we're hosting right now. One is uh, on Hegel and Marxism, or Hegel mm-hmm. and Marx. The other is on negative dialectics, and then finally we have the Black Question uh, from seventeen seventy six to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, though. I mean, because of course, obviously, Hegel has a tremendous influence upon the history of Marxism, of course, upon Adorno's dialectics. And so it's it's great to see this kind of like um, this kind of crossover between the pieces. The the PR how it comes together. What we're trying to do with the Platypus Review is to kind of curate what Platypus is already doing. Uh, so in a sense, if Platypus is hosting the conversation, the review is kind of curating that curation, right, or curating mm-hmm. that hosting. Mm-hmm. The emphasis, perhaps, on the ne- on negative dialectics and critical theory in general, it has to do with registering a, a sort of micro trend on the left of a kind of return to theory, you might say, that we've that we've been kind of noting. I think maybe we could bring up the Angela Davis, right? This article. Yeah. It was before she became a member of the Black Panther Party and she was studying under Adorno. And I think she's grappling. Well, it felt to me like in in, in this work that she's grappling with, with his work, Negative Dialectics. Yeah. And then Amer, who is, um, should be said as a Platypus member, is also addressing Adorno's project of freedom in crisis and tracing it through the crisis of the Enlightenment, through Marx and then into Adorno. And I guess you 
he's he's addressing it in that way because this a lot of that history is kind of uh, dropped by um, the left or um, or even scholars of Adorno who um, don't pick up on the the prior history that is so important to his work. That's right. Yeah, I mean one small example of how uh, Adorno scholars seem to like have lost that plot would be you know the first line of of Adorno's introduction to the book Negative Dialectics is a quote from Karl Korsch's Marxism and Philosophy and at least the EB tra- the EB Ashton translation does not include that you know as a as a note mm-hmm. yet the Angela Davis piece is is, is really interesting it, you're right. It's while she's she's writing this while she's studying under Adorno after having just studied under Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, and um, you can tell that she, you know, she's working through the book, the ideas of the book using Adorno's language. I would say, and it's it's really interesting having it appear next to an interview with her from the present day, mm-hmm. because. She's in the interview, some somewhat critical of Adorno. I think she's sympathetic, but she's turned a corner in a sense away from Adorno regarding the possibility of the subject of change in history. I think she considers Adorno a bit too pessimistic compared to Marcuse. So I, I guess what's interesting is all well, the history, um, her history between those those two works, her her paper, and then. The interview that that we hosted that's much more recent, I think the interview took place uh, last year in 2020, but it, we were waiting to, to put it together in with the publication of her thesis. And I guess in between that time, she's been, a, she was involved with the Black Panther Party. And as you said, it's interesting the, the way in which she's perhaps changed from those two moments. I guess maybe we could touch on the other two yeah. works, the Hegel and the Left and the Social Democracy. Yeah, so as we were talking about what Adorno is taking for granted, in terms of his history, the history of the left, of Marxism, uh, we also see this somewhat with Hegel on the left. Not necessarily Adorno's uh, thoughts, but really uh, how Hegel's been taken up and carried by the left or forgotten in certain ways. Mm. The question of Hegel has been an ongoing conversation in Platypus for a while now, and there's been a series of articles which will also include in the description, well, a a discussion really, between um, Chris Quattrone and uh, Jensen Suther and Fear Ferrisaris, which, yeah, they've also been published in the Platypus Review. And what's featuring in this issue is a, uh, this is a panel discussion on Hegel and the left, addressing the question, how does Hegel task the left and Marxism today? To jump to the heart of the matter, maybe it, it has to do with uh, critique, that what Marxism is getting from Hegel is the method of eminent dialectical critique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Richard Schneerov's piece on social democracy, the mix and the problem of the labor metaphysic is, so what Richard Schneerov means by the mix has to do with the way that looking back at history, it appears that capitalism was coexisting with feudalism for a short period of time. Now, this is the way Schneerov puts it. I might say, you know, bourgeois society instead of capitalism coexisting, you know, with feudalism. But Schneerov's point is that there seemed to be some overlap of productive, you know, forms of production. And where does that lead him? And it leads him to thinking that perhaps the Marxist concern with the working class is the working class as a revolutionary subject is perhaps a wasted energy. Wasted energy because maybe we are already headed towards socialism. Capitalism for Schneerov is seen as contention and socialism is seen as cooperation. And so where he sees increased kind of socialization, it seems to be tending towards socialism for him. So I guess it bypasses the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat. I think so. I think that's that's the argument uh, that's being made here. And so that's th- that explains like the subtitle or the, the, the final uh, piece of the, the first title or the, mm-hmm. the main title, the problem of the labor metaphysic, right? Is that Coutron for example, he's saying is is kind of stuck on Victorian Marxism of of this idea of of the working class. It reminds me of kind of quite a few leftist takes that society is progressing 
slowly or quickly or whichever way towards um, um, this kind of cooperative ethos that will kind of get us step to step towards socialism without the need for a, a revolution. Yeah. And he's taking up Chris Cotrone's... Chris's article, The End of the Gilded Age, Discontents of the Second Industrial Revolution Today. Uh-huh. We'll provide a link to that one as well. So do you know, do you have an idea of what's coming up in the next issue of the PR? Yeah. Um, I know Coming Down Pipe is our first public forum in Australia. Mm-hmm. And there's already a response to that which I think will be very interesting. The next issue will be coming out in September. It should also be said that the, the Platypus Review is open submission. So if you, if you fancy submitting us an article, taking up the left in some way, then feel absolutely free to get in touch with Lou. That's right. So the email address for the editor at the review is editor.platypusreview at gmail.com. Great. And even if you've got an idea that's not fully formed, we'll be here to help you get it together as well. That's right. You know, as as I said at the beginning, we host the conversation on the death of the left. We want the contributors to speak at their best, even if they're criticizing platypus. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are, there are no taboos when it comes to what we publish as well, as long as it's addressing the left's the left in some way and taking up that history then the Plaspis Review is really a platform and so is our podcast but it's a platform for all kinds of ideas and to hopefully um, hold those up against the history of the left as well and against our uh, reading group syllabus and to hopefully shed some light on where we're at now and how we got here and what that might mean for the future that's right cool yeah thanks for joining us Lou Thanks for hosting me. And uh, we're looking forward to the next issue of the Platypus Review in September. And look out for it at your university if they've got a Platypus chapter. Um, or if not, like I said, you can read it on our website, which is www.platypus1917.org. That's Platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Thanks. Thank you. All right, I'm here uh, with Ian from the campaign, the left campaign, which is going on in Berlin, uh, Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and Eignen. Hi, Ian, and thanks a lot for being uh, on the episode. Hello. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to talking about the campaign that we're doing. To start, I just wanted to ask you what brought you to the campaign in the first place and what brought you to the left in general? Well, originally... Uh, half my life ago, it was in school and I had uh, a few friends and one of them had a mother who was very active in Amnesty International and he set up a, a club in school to write letters for them to, for their human rights campaigns. We'd be sending letters to very, like quite distant countries appealing to the governments to release this that human rights defender who was in prison mostly, that was mostly most of the letters. But yeah, that that woke, woke me up to the um, existence of injustices in the world, which I think I was uh, uh, naive about until then, about the age of 16. So that's put me on the path in general. I also took part in, in largely environmental and climate campaigns in Ireland, where I'm from. It's like Shell to Sea, um, to fight against this, this gas pipe that was to be built in a small village in the northwest of Ireland and that was it was also inter politically an interesting experience although I didn't like take it really take in all the like potential theoretical aspects of the time it was like the campaign that was started by the people in the community and drew outside support rather than um, sort of the other way around like environmentalists starting something and getting a few locals to support them it was also a ca also a case there where it was like a massive a massive state giveaway of what should be a communal resource, which links us also in a very general way to what we're doing here in Berlin. And um, I moved to Berlin almost 10 years ago. Yeah, I was mostly doing things with various climate justice campaigns and movements, like the Green New Deal for Europe more recently. And I became motivated to take part in Deutsche Wohnen Co. Enteignen campaign because uh, it seemed like it could actually win was quite well conceived and organized 
uh, it yeah linked up a lot to some of the things in the Green New Deal for Europe, which I was which I already supported. And so far, we've collected we've collected about three hundred and sixty thousand signatures, and we submitted them. So, which is a record, like no similar ballot initiatives in Berlin, and there have been several. No, none of them have come anywhere close to this number of signatures, which shows this campaign has a massive amount of momentum. And I, I believe that with sufficient amount of work, we will win the referendum in September. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that uh, because I think probably a lot of our listeners um, do not know the campaign. Could you uh, explain what the Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and Eignen campaign is? What is it about? What what are its aims? Sure, fair enough. So, uh, to start with the name, Enteignen is German for expropriate, and Deutsche Wohnen is the name of a, a big profit-oriented housing corporation. Like, the, you can you can buy their their shares on the stock market, and although most, most of them are owned by the likes of BlackRock, and other institutional funds like this, and Allianz, I believe. Um, and yeah, the idea of the campaign is that uh, we want to there take uh, yes um, socialize the this housing stock of any company in Berlin that owns more than three thousand um, apartments, and we want to socialize them by uh, removing them from the market, decommodifying them, and bringing them under. Um, the control of an institution that would allow for the direct democratic control so it's it's uh, at this point it's important to differentiate between socialization and nationalization we're not trying to create public housing that's managed in a very top-down way we want to make make an institution where the tenants can have extensive say in um, in how the houses are managed and also for for the public in general to have a have a say and in yeah in german this is called gemeinwirtschaft we want in in essence to remove them from the market and put them create a tenants commons and it, and the oh yes i suppose it's worth saying it's not just deutsche wohnen it's the and co refers to about 10 other companies which also own massive amounts of housing uh, Venovia is worth mentioning. It's one of one of Europe's biggest landlords, uh, Germany's biggest landlord, and with it, and it's it's now fusing with Deutsche Wohnen to create a, com a corporation which would own about six hundred thousand uh, apartments Germany wide, and yeah, almost two hundred thousand in Berlin. And there's also Achelius, which is quite well known all over Europe and even in North America to a degree. And uh, as I said, almost ten others. We essentially want Berl the tenants of Berlin stop being used as a, sort of a gold mine for um, the shareholders of these companies. Thanks. And how does the campaign want to achieve that? You mentioned already uh, the signatures. So what's the strategy of the campaign to achieve the socialization of these housing corporations? So in Berlin, we are um, we're fortunate to be to find ourselves in a situation where we have a democratic instrument called the Volksbegehren. It's like a, a ballot, like a I think it would be a bit similar to what, what there is in some American states where you have a ballot initiative where you can collect signatures and it becomes a referendum. And the way, the way it works in Berlin is an initiative can come up with a proposed law, gather 20,000 signatures, and then the, the state government is obliged to do a, a legal examination of the proposal. And and if, they, if they're the office that does that, if it finds that the the proposal is legally possible, then the state government is obliged to consider passing it. If they consider it and decide not to do it, then there's all a campaign is also able to apply for a second stage where it's it has to gather the so signatures of about seven percent of the registered voters. So that though in in right now that means about one hundred and seventy two thousand people. Uh, so it means that. You actually have to be well organized in all parts of the city and be going out on the street, going out to many events. So that's the stage we're at now. We've just, we've just last week succeeded in gathering far more than the necessary amount of signatures. And now uh, we have three months to prepare for the actual referendum, which will take place parallel to the federal and state level elections in, on the 26th of September. 
and um, yeah, the Senate, the, the government certainly took their time. They took more than a year to do this legal examination and they made uh, some attempts to water it down. The exact proposal calls for the, the government to write a law that would socialise the housing stock in Berlin belonging to these corporations. And they, they want, for example, they wanted to water it down by changing the wording to having the Senate pass to, to make steps towards this, like, mass namen. So that could, and that would enable enable it, the Senate to make it take forever, just do it in, in little bits until a change of government, and then it would just stop entirely in all likelihood. So, but the campaign was well organized and um, composed of experienced enough people to resist all attempts of that nature. And we got our proposal through this process without without being changed or, or watered down in any way. But the, the government decided not to implement it because it consists of Die Linke, the SPD and the Green Party. And so Die Linke is a, 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 a left-wing party, the S Social Democrats, they're a centrist party and the Greens are kind of in between at various times. And Die Linke is, is the party that has come to su has solidly support the referendum. The gr the Greens are mixed and the SPD mostly against it, and because and because they couldn't agree, then they it didn't get passed. So then we went on to the stage of collecting the big number of signatures. Yeah, thanks. What happens with the campaign after the Berlin Senate voted on its proposal um, to expropriate uh, big housing companies? I mean, what happens with the campaign when it's um, when it reaches its aims? I think after after this, it'll still be it'll still be a struggle. The, the the struggle will have to continue to make sure that politician the politicians in power, and it could be different ones, that they don't try to further to have another attempt to water down the proposal, because they aren't stri strictly speaking they aren't legally obliged to implement it. Just it's uh, just they're politically obliged to do it. Like. Uh, it would be politically unwise to say no to to a clear majority but they but the, i think the most likely thing is that they might try to drag it out for years before it actually happens to prevent this possibility the campaign wrote a detailed law about exactly how to carry out the expropriation who to expropriate and yeah every every little detail that goes along with that and it's uh, several pages long and can be viewed on our website it's in german and the idea is that this closes, so at least somewhat closes the possibility off to, of politicians saying, oh, it's so complicated, it'll take so long to uh, write a law like this. It's uh, such a big task. But yeah, once we, and our campaign is all volunteers and we've managed to do it. So it, this gives politicians no excuse. Your question is about what about after that? So after that, the, I think the, the pressure from the streets will need to continue. We've experienced something a bit like this before. The government kept our proposal for far too long. It was almost 450 days in the legal examination stage. But there was a, a context in which that happened. It was, there was a number of large uh, tenant protests around September, like August, September, well, the summer of 2020. It appears that protests at this, at this city level, at least, they do have an effect. So I think... In, in the coming winter and spring after, these uh, protests will need to continue to make the politicians actually follow through on the will of the people. What is the relationship between the demand for expropriation and socialism? What I mean is, in what way is the demand to expropriate these companies a socialist demand? Our campaign doesn't identify as a socialist campaign, but uh, certainly socialists will find things of interest here. I mean, essentially, it's about um, changing a large part of the housing market. In this case, about 16% of it. So about 250,000 apartments from like a heavily financialized commodity, which is focused on profits into, yeah, it's about decommodifying it and bringing it into the public commons and more specifically under democratic control, which is something that most socialists would probably uh, support. Because the way it is currently, when I say heavily financialized, I think this deserves a bit more detail. So, okay, Elias is privately owned, but Fenovia, Deutsche Wohnen, 
and a number of others are traded on the stock market. The largest owners are the likes of BlackRock. These are the real customers of Deutsche Wohnen and Vonovia, not the, not the tenants, it's the shareholders. And this is why they largely ignore maintenance of the houses that they live in. They largely ignore tenant complaints unless they unless the tenants actually organize themselves into initiatives and do make it make it a big media spectacle because their their whole strategy is to let houses fall apart as far as possible by saving money on maintenance costs and staff costs and then carrying out a major modernization program and under the current German laws this after such modernizations it permits uh, massive increases in rent yeah this is very lucrative for the companies because and the the reason for that is because often the old tenants can no longer afford to pay the new rent and have to move out and find somewhere else and then the, the companies can find new tenants who who have higher incomes and can afford to pay much higher rents the rents in berlin for new contracts have been skyrocketing over the last 10 years that's kind of why these companies uh, entered the berlin market in such uh, large in such large numbers if what's appealing for socialists is that we just want to put an end, all, an end to all that, bring the housing in under the control of the majority of people. That brings me to my next question. You mentioned that the campaign is actually not a socialist campaign or doesn't identify as socialist. You also addressed the, the problems or the consequences of what you described as housing being a heavily financialized commodity. So my next question is, do you think or does the campaign think socialism is needed to solve the housing questions and these problems indefinitely? It's, it's, it depends on really what you mean by socialism. Sure. On our website you can find this pamphlet. It's about uh, 30 pages long. But it, it, lay, it lays out um, our vision for Berlin in, in greater detail than, than any flyer does. Our campaign does advocate, obviously, the removal from of as much housing as possible from the profit-oriented market. Our concrete proposal right now is for companies that own more than 3,000 apartments. Uh, back in 2018 when the campaign started, this was considered to be a good number. I think there was, I mean, some, some were suggesting lower numbers, but 3,000 seemed to be a good, a good boundary for those companies which are, had a particularly large influence in the market and was also Yeah, conceived as a politically realistic uh, number. Like I think our campaign has shifted the shifted the Overton window to the left enough in Berlin that now probably two thousand or one thousand would be also be politically realistic. But the booklet lays out a vision for what yeah for why taking as much of the housing as possible under the control of the communities would be good would be good. Uh, for working conditions, for uh, pu the public finances, for the rights and welfare of women, for example, for for the energy transition. It also discusses for new building and maintenance, creating creating companies which are run in a similar way, in a cooperative way, for to carry out the building and the. Uh, maintenance, which is also not really something so specifically socialist. It's, I mean, it's, it's also has existed here in Berlin before and in Vienna too, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, its suggestions are limited to a number of uh, sectors, not um, necessarily a whole, a total economic transition to Gemeinwirtschaft, so co the cooperative public economy. So I suppose the answer to your question is this. Is, Is is the campaign see socialism as necessary as uh, yine kinda, <laughs> but probably but uh, it doesn't it doesn't really get, get it doesn't go uh, this become this general at any point. A final question: uh, What is the relationship between the campaign and the party Die Linke? You already spoke about that before a bit. I just wanna, you know, go into that um, a bit deeper. Well, I mean, among the among the parties, Die Linke has been the strongest and most consistent supporter of the campaign, but it wasn't always a supporter. There was there was a time very uh, right at this when the campaign was very new, and Die Linke was also skeptical of it. So it wasn't an immediate thing, and the campaign also did not come from the structures of Die Linke. It came from the convergence of uh, Koti und Co., which is the Deutsche Wohnen tenants network initiative 
Katya and Co. is a, a tenants or organization that still exists and has existed for 10 years net, to network the tenants around the um, one of Berlin's best known neighborhoods, the Kapusator in East Kreuzberg, which is it's full of social housing that was like high, high, high social high rises built by the state in the 70s, but which were privatized in the early 20th century and largely ended up in the hands of Deutsche Wohnen. They've been barely maintained at all for 40 years. This has been largely because of Deutsche Wohnen's practices of not doing maintenance. And uh, yes, anyway, these, te these tenants, they were tired of the, the lack of service, the lack of maintenance, and the rent and the rent increases and the high, the high charges for services. So they started talking to each other and created this uh, local campaign, the great media presence to pressure Deutsche Wohnen to act more. And uh, from this group came uh, the demand to undo the privatization and bring them back under public control. And then there was the other thing I mentioned was a citywide Deutsche Wohnen tenants network initiative that, that, that kind of um, came into being in 2017 in other Deutsche Wohnen uh, estates around the city, of which there are many, because the company owns about 116,000 apartments in Berlin, so it's, it's by far Berlin's largest corporate landlord. Uh, yeah, this, this was the sort of environment, so the, the sort of milieu from which Deutsche Wohnen and Enteignen emerged, and there was also some, also some people from the interventionist left um, play, have played a big role in, in organizing meetings and, camp and strategy and all that. So it didn't come from Die Linke, but uh, current, for currently relations with Die Linke are good, mostly. They, the Die Linke played a considerable role in collecting signatures, all in all they collected 32,000 signatures, so about 8%, 8 9% of the total, which is incredibly helpful. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'd say, it, I mean, it is the party that we have more friendly relations with than uh, other other parties. Another thing that I think is worth, uh, worth it for your readers to know, or your listeners to know, is uh, that the, camp the campaign's demand is based in something to think about especially for those who are in other countries who are um, inspired by what the campaign is doing it's w it's worth knowing that the campaign regularly discusses and is very much based in articles 14 and 15 of the german constitution and which happened to be written at a, right after the second world war and at a time when there was a lot of skepticism about the market the capitalist market economy so um there is these clauses written into the Constitution in Article 14, 14 and 15. So Article 14 does uh, protect private property rights, but not without limit. And I think it, re it restricts private property more than many other constitutions. Uh, like it's, it says specifically, property entails obligations to the public good. And it specifically talks about the possibility of expropriation. And that says that natural resources and means of production and land and uh, housing can, for the purpose of socialization be transferred into public ownership uh, by a law that determines the nature and extent of the compensation. So this is the, this is the legal basis for the campaign. So that's somewhat specific to, to Germany, but um, I mean other, other, in other countries uh, such campaigns may discover other, other strategies because our activists here didn't realize this potential for quite a long time but now, now it's been discovered and it's um, a fantastic tool in the hand in our hands that we have all right thanks again for being here for being on this episode um, for talking uh, with me and yeah take care yeah uh, thanks for having Okay, hello. Hi. Hi. I am here with two of our Danish members, Sissel uh, and Victor. Could you briefly introduce yourselves? I'm Sissel. I'm a PhD student in intellectual history in, in Aarhus, and I joined the Aarhus chapter a year ago, a little more than a year ago, and I knew Victor as a colleague before, so that's how I joined. Cool. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm Victor. I created the Aarhus chapter of Platypus. And I'm uh, an assistant professor in anthropology at Aarhus University in Denmark as well. Okay, so there is an expanding academic culture war that has gone from American academia into other parts of the world, and I guess it's arrived in Danish academia. Could you maybe, Victor, tell us a little bit about what's going on? The way this has manifested right now is that the Danish parliament has signed proposition that says that research should not be a disguised form of politics, uh, that there should also not be pressure uh, from other researchers, uh, like political pressure put on researchers to conform to a specific ideology. Mm-hmm. And they've called this uh, a statement on freedom of research. Mm-hmm. And that has produced a massive uproar on the part of uh, uh, academics uh, who see it as the opposite of an attempt to increase freedom of research and instead think that it's politicians trying to get rid of inconvenient research. Right. So all of this has come down on what does it mean to demand academic freedom on both sides? Everyone is saying we want more academic freedom, the restrictions of which are unclear. Um, so this just passed on June 1st, right? So I was reading that the Danish parliament adopted a position on what they're calling excessive activism in certain research environments. It passed with a majority with all of the major parties in favor, including the Social Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So Sissel, what has been your experience uh, in the universities? How have people responded to all of this? So intellectual history in Denmark is um, is uh, profoundly persistent within the new left or the history of the new left. So I think the reactions has mostly been have mostly been critical towards Parliament and towards the Social Democratic Party. And the the most common political stance on this is that this is this is a an up critique of research from conservative or neoliberal parties on freedom of research. So it's power relations, mostly. They think of it as power relations and the majority acting upon minority researchers and taking a powerful stance against researchers working with minorities, but also minority researchers. Yeah. What, what does it mean concretely, passing this? What kind of research mm-hmm. is no longer going to be possible? Well, that's the question, right? Because It seems as if this motion or this proposition is really just common sense. Like the motion just states that research should be free of political engagement, that parliament shouldn't interfere with research and that ideologies like politically driven ideologies shouldn't shouldn't actually lead the results or the motivations of research. So it doesn't ban anything. It just states that research should be free and that research institutions should should self-regulate. To add some context to this, I think there's two other things going on as well. So what really provoked Danish researchers is the fact that uh, it's not so much the motion, which indeed doesn't really change anything. It's just a motion, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a law. It doesn't. It's not like in the U.S. where uh, critical race theory was banned in schools. No. Uh, and it's not even like in France where a report on so-called Islamo-leftism was asked by the Minister of Research and, and realized by uh, uh, the research ministry, right? So you don't even have a report on this, etc. It's just, but what really produced um, outrage uh, in the researcher community was that uh, specific researchers and their research were named and discussed in parliament as examples of pseudo-research or activist research. And they thought that that was, although it's not illegal, uh, that that was a step too far. So that's one thing. The other thing, the sort of longer background, is that a few years ago, a European report or an article uh, came out placing Denmark at the bottom of European countries in terms of freedom of research based on really like, you know, these very technocratic measures. Uh, None of it had to do with, I mean, it's difficult to measure what academic freedom would be, but measuring uh, in part like the the security of careers uh, and legal protections for researchers. 
And so the question of freedom of research had been around for quite a few years. People thought something had to be done because Denmark is used to being at the top of everything in, in Europe, that they were at the bottom was a problem. And yet none of the debate has focused on these points, that is on precisely like improving uh, research careers in Denmark so that they wouldn't be so vulnerable to political attacks or to... Uh, uh, like partisan funding? Not even this. So, because uh, I guess part of what the, the politicians are criticizing is that they think perhaps researchers are uh, more likely to produce a specific sort of research because they want to get hired by a department right uh-huh like oh that that was that was a criterion for the original report actually right that if your career is not secure enough then you will tend to do research that conforms to a specific ideological line perhaps mm-hmm. And so instead of talking about how to strengthen these careers, people as uh, both the researchers and the politicians have just been debating in these very abstract terms. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of this is that then there's a massive, just after that debate took place in Parliament, and I don't think it's a coincidence, the government with a very strong majority, including far-left parties, has launched a wide-scale reform of universities that really seems to threaten a lot of social sciences and humanities departments. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I see. So in some ways, this is a way of covering their ass. Right. But so, so, you know, I think what happened is that the government, knowing that they were going to uh, anger researchers with this massive reform of universities, wanted to discredit them, to force them to discredit mm-hmm. themselves, in advance by launching this pseudo debate a few weeks before where they said, you know, these academics, they're just, they're not really academics anymore. They're not really doing real research. It's just like activism Mm -hmm. and the sort of activism that most people in Denmark, uh, the sort of work activism that most people in Denmark, like most people in the US or anywhere in the world think is a little bit uh, uh, Mm -hmm. stupid, right? Or is, is not Uh, very serious. Mm -hmm. And so academics, I think, plunged headfirst into that controversy, not realizing what was going on, and now are in a very weak position to say anything against this new reform. Since you mentioned the American case, I just wanted to note, so this was a motion in Danish parliament, whereas in the United States, you have state legislation. Six have enacted legislation banning public schools from promoting critical race theories, core concepts, which include things like racial essentialism, collective guilt, and racial superiority. So what this means on the ground at actual schools is that teachers are not able to teach things like one race is inherently superior to another, or one race is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, or that individuals bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race. Uh, What it doesn't mean, though, which, um, you know, there's been response against this in the United States by MSNBC and all kinds of liberal pundits who say, well, that means that you can't teach students anything about race or slavery. Like the right wing wants to ban people from talking about black people in schools. And obviously that's not what it means. You know, I, I also think that the activist response against it has actually confused things. Um, basically presenting lies uh, about what this means. So coming back to this Danish issue, what it sounds like, it's a sort of uh, strategy to um, maybe discredit these activists that are within academia. That's how it's going to play out. In fact, like, wouldn't you say that, so there's a letter that's been uh, signed by many academics, activists, and students, and wouldn't you say that this letter, it, it may not help, like it may actually hurt them because it's kind of proving their point, right? That yeah. that academia is a site for activism. One of my colleagues that uh, works with uh, critical race theory uh, in her PhD project, who's also very closely connected to the authors of this letter, I asked her what she ex- expected from this letter and she didn't, and she said, well, actually nothing, like nothing is going to come out of it. And I said, well, nothing's going to come out of this motion either. We're not being limited by this in any way. It's just like, it's just stating how we think of universities and and how they're supposed to work, like ideally uh, in bourgeois society. So, and she said, yeah, 
Yeah, that's true. But it's nothing is going to come out of it. And but I but we have to act. Like so, it also comes down to exactly this, like activism as or practice as as a primacy. Um, I think like we have to do something. Something must be done, right? Yeah, I think what's going on here is the same as what's going on in, in the US or in France, actually, about the very similar debates, uh, which is that on the one hand, it's a storm in a teacup. Nothing is actually happening. As you said in the US, right, even where there is a law and so on, it's a law that everybody sort of agrees on. The content of it mm-hmm. is largely uncontroversial for most people. And uh, at the same time, it's discussed in these highly polarized terms as uh, a manifestation of a left-right political opposition that really does not exist, in that most of the people who write about gender and race and migration in Denmark are liberals, do it in terms quite explicitly of respect for human rights, and for morality, uh, like uh, decency, you know, human decency, respect for human dignity, but not at all in the political way and actually defend themselves from doing it in a political way when you ask them. So they're, they're very much centrists and the people criticizing them are also very much centrists. Uh, they are like the social Democrats who in Denmark are, you know, center, perhaps center left, who are in government right now. And who, like good social democrats, want to restrict migration because it will hurt, you know, national workers, want to encourage integration and fight against disintegration of society, that sort of stuff. And what I thought was particularly interesting in the leftist response to this letter is the way that Marxists in particular ended up, and the letter in general, ended up coming in support of of neoliberalism uh, on this specific Mm -hmm. point. That is, what all of these researchers have said is that, in fact, there is no need for political check on quality of research because that already happened in all these technocratic ways that were invented since the 80s, and that researchers in Denmark fought in the 80s and in the 90s and in the 2000s as like a manifestation of neoliberalism. And now they say, well, no, 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 look, we have, you know, bibliometric evaluations. This is all we need. Uh, We already receive our funding from like independent agencies. And none of them protest against one of the other uh, things that's really at the root, I think, of the question, which is that there's been a demand since the I think mid-2000s in Denmark, for researchers to have a public impact. That is, if I want to get a career, to get a position in Denmark or actually anywhere else now in academia, I need to show that I have used my research in a public debate, that I've talked to journalists, I've created exhibitions, I've made, I've written reports for the state. And so that this is that demand that academics have not just accepted but become proud of in a certain way and thought that that was uh, that allowed them to be political to be paid to make a sort of political impact Mm -hmm. so that is not being questioned by anyone in actual fact right it's taken for granted that this which is sort of uh, um was understood to be outrageous a few years ago even, is now mm-hmm. uh, defended as uh, a good thing. The definition of academic freedom ends up supporting this neoliberal self-regulation within the sciences, within academia, really. But then on the other hand, the response, I know I read this article that you sent me from Jacobin, the response against the motion in Parliament is to say we are politically committed researchers and we should be allowed to do so. So it goes back and sort of undermines like a rather liberal conception of research, which is that it's not politically committed, that it should have independence from political ends tied to the Mm -hmm. interest of parties in power. And so it it ends up being a bit, um, the left ends up sounding like the right, you know, that they support the instrumentalization of the sciences for people that are in power. Mm -hmm. 
Right, and they use Marx to say this. So what the the Marxist uh, academics have also said, they've said two things. So uh, Michael Bolt, who's a specialist of Walter Benjamin and situationism, has said that although this reminds us of the debates around the heavy Marxist influence on Danish universities in the 70s, it's really quite mm -hmm. different because since the 80s, academics have been much better. Now we're really talking about real politics uh, with these racial, ethnic, migration, gender studies. Now we're really talking about power structures. And it's because we're so effective at doing this that uh, these people in power are frightened by us. And this is why they're reacting against this. There's a real celebration of this neoliberal pseudo-political moment or depoliticization moment, uh, the abandonment of politics for uh, uh, the personal uh, as political itself. That is quite striking. And the other thing is uh, another professor whose name I forget said, well, really, we know from Marxism that no research can be value-free and can be uh, free of uh, economic and political interests. All research is already full of interests and politicized, etc. And so let's just lean into this, right? Let's not deny this. And so they use this as a, they use Marxism as a form of realism, pseudo-realism, like let's give up pretense that what mm -hmm. we're doing is mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, again, what I find uh, striking is their complete misunderstanding of politics and political processes. They're surprised that they're being played in such a way. You know, how dare you in Parliament call us out? This is just unacceptable. So it's it's very contradictory. So in many ways, this, this debate that's going on right now in the Danish universities mirrors some of the conversations that have been going on in the American universities how do Danish students, activists, university faculty connect these two, these two things from the American situation and the Danish situation? There is an anxiety or at least a critique of the Americanization of Danish society. Like, for instance, the author of the Jacobin article that we mentioned before uh, also talks about this, um, talks about the Americanization of the culture wars moving into Danish universities, mm -hmm. but also the Americanization of politics, like identity politics being this American mm -hmm. uh, configuration of politics, right? And I think it happens in different ways. One of the ways in which it happens is also scholars critiquing the American concepts of identity politics in a way that they should be reconfigured to the Scandinavian or the Nordic context. So that, for instance, might result in what one of my colleagues has suggested, which is trying to conceptualize uh, this uh, sort of Scandinavian whiteness. Like in terms of critical race uh, theories, we should not work with the mm. American concept of whiteness or blackness even. Uh, we should work with like uh, Scandinavian uh, whiteness. How does whiteness uh, perceive itself and how does uh, power relations mm. within whiteness mm. culture um, manifest mm. uh, in Scandinavia in that way? And people worried about Trumpism mm -hmm. and also people worried about... Uh, like left uh, or right-wingers worried about woke culture. Mm -hmm. But it's funny that it's presented in this term of Trumpism, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously Trump is not in power anymore. And yet the image of Trump lingers as a way of making sense of the the elements in parliament that are against woke culture. Exactly. And I think also Trump still serves as the devil of politics, like or the, a, a hostile image uh, through which we can propagandate different sort of political stances, um, even though he's not in power anymore. Apart from the letter and the response by academics and students, has any of the larger Danish community outside of the universities paid attention to this? Is there any response outside by the left, by activists? 
I have several friends working in like administrative uh, or directive uh, positions in NGOs and students' organizations. And they just cite each other, right? They post each other's articles, mostly articles written by leftist academics, like uh, the one in Jacobin, like Information, which is uh, like the leftist paper in Denmark, in which people have published different debate essays. So they cite each other mostly, and they mostly cite professors from the humanities writing against this motion. And yeah, really, yeah, writing against this motion as, a, as an attack on academic freedom. You know, it's funny because in some ways they're falling into a trap, mm-hmm. right? The They're revealing the left academic rackets. Exactly. You know, the pseudo left academic rackets. Mm-hmm. They're citing each other, you know, citing the same publications, mm-hmm. using each other to support each other's thesis. I think, you know, to presume that there is a left in Denmark that is not the academic left is, I don't know, you know, I haven't met it yet. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it exists. If you're out there... <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> Get in touch. You know, if they're not academics, they used to be academics like not too long ago and they were politicized as mm-hmm. academics and the understanding of what it means to be on the left and to be political is uh, tied to this. And often they think, uh, if they're not academics anymore, from what I often have perceived, right, uh, they might think that being an academic is where they would be real, like uh, more effective politically in a way, you know, real activists, because then they would have time to like really go into uh, the sorts of stuff they're interested in. Uh, but I mean, there is a, a small, I can think, for instance, of like Black Lives Matter Denmark, which has publicly denied being on the left quite repeatedly, but which other people on the left in Denmark think is part of the left. And they have, of course, supported the, f- the fight against this motion in parliament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is widespread support. I haven't seen any critique of the researchers' response by the left of any form. Mm-hmm. And the only one, in a way, that has said something that I thought was uh, interesting was a student of Adorno, uh, who was one of the main leftists, uh, Marxists in Denmark in the 70s. And then you mean the professor of intellectual history in Aarhus? Right. Hans Jans Jans, Professor Emeritus, Hans Jans Jans. Hans Jans And mm-hmm. who said in an interview, you know, all of this, like race and gender studies, etc., it's not important. It's nonsense. There, there's a PSU. They're not doing anything that's harming society. They're not doing anything that's benefiting society. It's just a sort of uh, narcissistic little cult. My words, not his. Uh, and. On the other hand, the the political criticism is also nonsensical and doesn't make sense. So he's like the only figure I've heard mm-hmm. who made this sort of point. And then others who were sort of more on the right uh, said, yes, indeed, there is a problem in uh, a lot of academic departments mm-hmm. with pseudo-research and activist research, but it's a problem with we can deal with. We don't need politicians to deal with that. But that's come also from the right. Whereas uh, there's been like silence on the left, even though a lot of my colleagues who do think of themselves as being on the left do think that these problems exist. Yeah. In the American situation, this plays out in, in a way that the Democratic Party can then make claims that they're defending teaching race and slavery in the classroom. So recently... Uh, Joe Biden passed a mm-hmm. bill making Juneteenth a national holiday. And across like liberal pundits and Twitter accounts, uh, they celebrated the fact that Juneteenth was no longer going to be illegal to teach in the classroom, you know, which is mm-hmm. patently false. Like it was never illegal to teach about Juneteenth in the classroom. And on the other side, like the strong kind of conservative right wing response is to say that BLM in the response to George Floyd's death last year has introduced Marxism and that Marxism needs to be kicked out of the classroom, right? So there's a recent book um, by some right-wing wonk from the Heritage Foundation um, called 
uh, BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution, which is coming out this year. And it, you know, it makes this accusation that what BLM amounts to, it's the introduction of like socialist doctrines in the universities. How the so-called left responds to this is by publishing articles on Juneteenth from a left perspective, right? Which sound essentially like Democratic Party propaganda, really. In relation to this, what I find striking is how leftist academics do not self-critique, but they use this, this motion and this moment in time to uh, reinstate, as Victor said, um, like the, the illusion of the left and right. Um, so they mostly what they do is to critique right-wing attacks on academic freedom while dismissing and rejecting whatever voices uh, coming from inside academia also saying well vote culture is also kind of um, you know a problem but as you said it's rackets now perhaps they should have been better at the racket. Mm. What is surprising to me is how bad they are mm. at the racket. Mm. You know, I didn't sign, I didn't sign that letter, not because uh, mm. I was entirely uh, agreeing with the parliament or uh, disagreeing with the letter, but just because I thought it was so badly formulated. And indeed the opportunity that was missed was to lean into a uh, questioning of the neoliberal consensus around these reforms of university and saying, well, actually, no, research should not be externally funded. Research, like funding for research should not be given by independent agencies and foundations that are autonomous from disciplinary considerations and only have social uh, benefits or social impact in mind, right? Actually, research should be funded by researchers themselves within uh, disciplinary lines, like a conservative motion in that sense, right? And uh, uh, research uh, careers should be stronger. The other thing, you know, that I think is is striking on all this, if we take a longer view, is that they all, what they disguise as a Marxist position, that really all researchers come with their own values and interests, and uh, we should be aware of this. This is not Marx's position, but this is Max Weber's position, who is very much not a Marxist. Mm -hmm. And this uh, relativism of research, relativism of values, uh, that should push us to try to question our own values and produce value-free research to the extent that that's humanly possible, uh, so that politicians and the wider public can make use of our research. That's Max Weber's yeah. Uh, ideals, and that's the sort of thing that uh, Lukács in the text that we read in the syllabus uh, really tries to understand, right, the, the relation between this and Marxism. Why, in a certain way, the form of thinking that is required for a proletarian politics, for left-wing politics, cannot come from the university, but has to come from uh, an institution like the party, the Communist Party, right? And that in the absence of this, as Adorno and the Frankfurt School uh, uh, really described, investigated, clarified, in the absence of the party, the sort of knowledge we can produce should really not be partisan, because then it falls into uh, the racket. Mm -hmm. And instead, if we are serious about the revolution in a certain way, we should be much more careful and not lean into the disintegration of uh, bourgeois ideals in the way these, what at the time was Stalinians were doing, mm -hmm. right? By uh, making their research Mm -hmm. by subordinating their research to the interests or the supposed interests of the working class and uh, working class movements. That is, even if it's wrong, at least it helps uh, the movement, right? Uh, we should really not think like that, uh, according to the Frankfurt mm -hmm. School. So there's something really quite uh, fascinating and disturbing in seeing uh, the Frankfurt School being used in all, and Marxism, right, being used uh, to justify the rackets. You know, maybe the so-called liberals in the academy are the the last defenders of the neoliberal ideas of self-regulation against the so-called Trumpists mm -hmm. in the Danish parliament. Yeah. 
One thing perhaps to add that I, I don't know if it was clear enough is that, so it's the role of Ines Liston, the far left party uh, that's composed mm -hmm. largely of Trotskyist party, Mendelite, ex-Stalinian parties, and sort of far left greens in the 1990s. And it's a phenomenon itself of neoliberalism. Ines Liston, as far as I know, did oppose the motion, was one of the few parties to not support the motion, but did so I think, in order to wholeheartedly embrace the reform of universities uh, that came afterwards and to justify their support for that, the reform that came afterwards. That has very concrete material effect and is going to uh, weaken research in Denmark uh, quite a lot more and freedom of research. And so they, they did this, like the way they, they justified uh, supporting the new reform is by saying that they, by participating in making that reform and supporting it, they were able to make it uh, less aggressive than it would have been. Uh, but this is the claim they make. And I think it's easier to make that claim because they uh, did not support the attack on academics before. And I think it's a very, you know, uh, Ines Liston uh, tries to uh, present itself as uh, uh, an independent far-left resistance force or whatever. But really, they are the party that the Social Democrats lean on to make uh, a lot of the more social reforms, uh, whilst they lean on far-right parties in order to reform uh, immigration policy. Mm -hmm. With the help of, of the current minister, who was an, an ex-Maoist, Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, the current minister of immigration is an ex-Maoist. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in his list and completely is part of the game, uh, is yeah. participating in everything. All academics, most of the academics I know vote for in this list, right, for that far left party. And so they need the support of academics to survive. To be a better pressure tactic on the center, whereas they're being used by the center. Exactly. All of the yeah. voters are academics. They're rich academics living in the larger cities in Denmark, mostly Copenhagen it's, and, uh, and Aarhus. And a lot of academics go on to, beyond their PhDs, go on to make careers within the party, actually. I see. Mm. It's repeating some of the political opportunism that we're seeing around this in, in other places like the United States and France. So if you'd like to know more about Platypus in Orhos, uh, leave some links for you in the episode description. If you'd like to read Lukács, History and Class Consciousness that we read in the primary syllabus, you should get in touch. And thank you to both of you for joining us on this episode of SPS. Thanks, fam. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it. You've made it to the end of the episode. Did you know that you can find us on social media? We're Shit Platypus Says on Instagram and we're Platypus Says on Twitter. So be sure to follow us to keep up to date with our latest news. And why don't you like and follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud and feel free to leave us a review.